Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami. A Tuesday tumble is another rate shock hit stock. So where are the markets headed from here? We are digging in. Also ahead, a $16 trillion warning from a top Wall Street strategist why he says the biggest bubble ever is about to burst. And later, Costco craziness, this one picture that tells a tale of two Chinas. But we begin with today's market action stocks going on a roller coaster ride as yields move lower. The bond market sending out its clearest warning yet that a recession could be coming with the yield curve at its deepest inversion since the Great Recession. So is now the time to start worrying? We asked this question because initially when the yield curve inverted, we said, oh, it only lasted for a couple of hours. No big deal. Here we are. What is it? Two weeks later. It has been at near or inverted for the past two weeks. Although three's tense, been inverted back, back in May. Three months so. ago, true. So now we have all of these indicators flashing recession, recession, recession. Should we, well, I mean, you should worried? always be worried, I think. But I think with worrying comes in, you know, Pete uses the word all the time, trading opportunities. I think that's what you have now. He said something a couple weeks ago. It stayed with me. The volatility is going to be volatile, and I agree with that. I'm going to say something. I'll say it again. I've been pretty steadfast. I think the market will bottom the S&P 500 when the VIX prints 30 or thereabouts. And we close today at 20 and a half. So I think rallies need to be sold in this market. And I think the trend is going to be continue to be lower for all the reasons you mentioned. There are other reasons as well. It's not just the U.S.-China trade. And quite frankly, it's not just this inverted yield curve. There are other things going on as well. Market just seems a little tired here. And you go back and look at the way Facebook reacted after they reported a couple weeks ago. You look at the way um, Amazon reacted when it reported. And to a certain extent, although not nearly as much, Apple as well. So I think stocks have been trying to tell you something. The Russell's been trying to tell you something. And I think, again, the S&P is headed towards Ooh, lower The lows. Russell's trying to tell you something big. I mean, it's traded today. It closed at a low that it has not traded at uh, since January, late January. So down, you know, 16.5% um, from the highs. I think it's been telling you something um, similar to what the banks are telling you, too. I mean, look at the, the price action in the banks today. They opened up when the market was green, but they went red kind of quickly and stayed down. And they really, a lot of them, Citibank, uh, Bank America, they're sitting on really important um, support levels. That is one group that does not like this uh, inverted yield curve. If you look at how they've acted since that's happened here. So to me, you know, to me, I think you want to focus on small caps. You want to focus on banks. I I just I mean, the the irony of that, I think you're right. Um, And if you overlay a 10 year uh, 10 year bond yield of the 10 year Treasury against either small caps or retail, the two parts of the economy that really so far have not rolled over, even though those are parts of the market that have. Again, this country is based upon the small business largely. And and if you think about that, um, they should be feeling very good. Americans confidence in going out to get a new job right now is spurring them to spend. And right now, that part of the economy is doing fine. Pete? Well, I got to tell you, Guy, you were talking about volatility. And yes, it's been extremely volatile. And we, I, I expect that to continue, Mel. I mean, I think I don't know why we're not going to see even bigger fluctuations as we watch this market, because right now we have very little volumes in the market. I mean, you look at the last six days, Mel, and I talked about this earlier, but 
five million under our daily average on the derivatives market right now. I mean, the volumes are not there. And so what's that telling you is these moves could get even more exaggerated. So I think it's going to be something interesting with, along with the algos that kick in. But you're right. When we're trading at a 20 and a half, call it on the VIX right now, why couldn't it spike up a little bit more? I mean, all, we're just a tweet away from seeing a volatility index actually hitting towards 30, in my opinion. Now, we've already seen it get up towards 24. I think we get any kind of a break to the downside. We're going to see a monster, but that will create opportunity. There always will be opportunities, I think, in this market. We've gone through the earnings season for the most part. We know what these companies are looking at, what they're projecting going forward. And so because of that, that gives us a great opportunity to look and find those those names. Well, we've been talking about two's tens as an indicator. Our yes. next guest is looking at something else. Um, Gluskin Chief, Chef, Chief Economist and Strategist, David Rosenberg tweeting today, we now have had three months of a three-month, 10-year yield curve inversion. The track record this has had in predicting recessions, 100%. Wow. Joining us now is David Rosenberg. So, David, we understand that you think that a recession is already here. You're also the strategist we mentioned. So what, what do you do if you are in that camp, if you believe that? Well, look, the, the yield curve inversion leads the economy. So I didn't say the recession is actually starting right now, and I think that everybody is quite correct. It's hard to get an outright recession uh, when the consumer is still spending, you know, which is still the case. I think the question we want to answer as economists is in three, six, nine or 12 months, what is the shape of the consumer going to look like? And the consumer doesn't operate in isolation of the other parts of the economy uh, any more than the U.S. economy operates in isolation uh, from what's happening around the world. It's just a case of the lags. Now, look, um, I'm a firm believer in the yield curve, uh, but it's not the only indicator around. You have so many other confirmations out there. Uh, if you concocted a cyclical stock index from the S&P 500, which we've done, we're almost back in bear market territory. If you look at the base metals from the CRB, we're almost back in bear market territory. You have uh, other market indicators right now actually telling you uh, that a recession, uh, which is not going to say necessarily baked in the cake mm -hmm. um, just yet, but that those risks are extremely high uh, and they're on the rise. And that's, I think, the message from the yield curve is just a confirmating ind confirmation indicator from everything else we're seeing right now. So in terms of the consumer, David, I mean, a consumer that is confident, a consumer that continues to spend, uh, so far at least, um, what, do you, what do you look at around the consumer that could impact that behavior and, and bring that major part of the U.S. economy down or, or slow that down? Well, uh, I think that when we start to see um, a situation where employment growth slows sufficiently that you start getting a rise in the unemployment rate on a sustained basis, uh, that's going to lead to a decay in wage growth, and that's going to have an impact on consumer spending right there. And we've already seen from the JOLTS data that although firings are extremely low, and we know that companies are hoarding on to their skilled labor because of the shortage uh, of, uh, of skilled labor out there, that we also have a situation where hirings are actually dissipating. So the question is uh, not even if payrolls go negative, but they slow enough, household employment slows enough that the employment rate goes up. Uh, I think that'll be a signal for weaker wage growth ahead, and I think that's one of the indicators we'd be looking for. You know, everybody is waxing about today's consumer confidence report, and what I find is that people look at the headline, and then they pontificate about how great the index was. But remember that there's two components. There's the current index, and there's the expected index. And the expected index actually rolled over uh, in August, and when you're taking a look, for example, at expectations of employment, it was weaker. Expectations of labor income, it was weaker. Uh, when you're taking a look at buying intentions of houses and appliances, they rolled over. So 
the expectations components of these confidence surveys actually do a much better job leading the consumer than the headline indices everybody gazes at. So I would say that the internals behind the report today actually didn't leave me with a warm and fuzzy feeling for the outlook mm. for consumer spending in the next few months. Hey, hey, David, so we were just talking about the Russell 2000 small cap stocks that are in an earnings recession right now. And I've heard you talk about um, triple B debt, corporate debt. So let's move away from treasuries where we're spending a lot of time talking about the inversion. And you've had this concern that you think there is a potential for a lot of that to go to junk, which would be bigger than subprime. Is the underperformance in the Russell 2000 telling us something about high yield debt? And is that something that investors should keep their eye on that they're really not paying attention to as we think about this treasury yield inversion? I think that's a great point because, you know, ordinarily you'd be saying that, you know, the mega caps or the large cap uh, multinational exporters that are so susceptible uh, to what's happening on the trade side would be the areas that would be underperforming and it's the small caps which have a much more domestic economy content to them. So, uh, I think the point is very well taken that a lot of this is actually coming from a recession, if you want, or I'd say certainly a very significant weakening in capital spending in the United States. Now, actually, CapEx is weakening around the world, and part of that is related to the general heightened geopolitical trade uncertainty. But I was saying, actually, at the beginning of the year in my report uh, was that the big risk for the economy was that if we don't see these triple Bs get downgraded into junk looking at how overextended their balance sheets are and looking at the start of a huge refinancing calendar, something else is going to happen. Why have we not seen, for example, these triple Bs get downgraded? Why hasn't the default delinquency rate gone up? Is because companies are deleveraging and they are paying down debt. And look, nothing mm-hmm. wrong with going on a debt diet, but it comes at the expense of something called aggregate demand growth, which is GDP. Uh, so I think the big surprise this year, uh, you can say, well, boy, the consumers hung, hung in reasonably well. On the other side, capital spending's been incredibly weak. And, of course, today's durables, uh, you know, added to that uh, general softness in the view for capital spending. So right. there's that other, di- the other dynamic of debt deleveraging coming at the expense. Look, by the way, it's not just coming at the expense of capital spending. All of a sudden, buybacks, stock buybacks, which were a huge prop to this market for the mm-hmm. past decade, are starting to subside as well. So I'd say that it's encouraging that we're not seeing, you know, this crisis of fallen angels, of triple Bs getting getting downgraded. But what comes out the other side is this deleveraging cycle, which comes to the expense right. of economic activity. David, thank you so much. We've got some breaking news, so we've got to run. David Rosenberg of Gluston Chef. That breaking news on Peloton. Leslie Picker's got the story. Leslie. Hey, Melissa. Peloton revealing its S-1 filing, uh, officially catapulting its IPO in motion here with a placeholder of about $500 million for an offering size, although inevitably that number will change as it gets closer to its launch date. Uh, digging into the filing, uh, the financials here, some really interesting stuff. $915 million in revenue for 2019. Uh, they break that out in terms of fitness products, subscription, and other. That number, though, that top-line number doubling year over year on losses of about $200 million over that time frame. Um, 511,000 connected fitness subscribers in 2019. And they say the average net monthly connected fitness churn is about 0.65% for 2019. Uh, They did file with a dual class share structure, 20 votes for Class B shares. Class A gets one vote. Uh, The banks managing this deal, it's Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan uh, leading this one. Now, reportedly, they're seeking 
about double the valuation from their latest round, which where they were valued at about $4 billion. And so far, they've raised about a billion dollars in venture capital. And it's worth noting, uh, in full disclosure, that Comcast and NBC both uh, has a stake in uh, Peloton, the parent company of CNBC. Uh, if you recall, Melissa, they confidentially filed in June. This revelation of their filing today uh, means that they have to wait about 15 days before they can officially launch their IPO process in a roadshow meeting with investors and so forth. They need to wait at least two weeks to do that before we can start to see movement there, meetings with investors. And then about two weeks later, uh, we could see a listing if that process moves as quickly as possible. Uh, but time will tell. Otherwise, still digging through this uh, multi-hundred page filing. So we'll let you know if we learn anything else interesting. Back over to you. Leslie, I wanted to ask you about the key metrics here that they're using. You mentioned I think average net monthly connected. Do they have a like a revenue per user sort of? I mean, I'm just trying to understand, you know, what. Yeah, what the unit economics here. Yeah. Um, so we haven't gone through the entirety of the filing to get uh-huh. down to the unit economics yet. Um, but we will dig through it and let you know that exact answer to that question um, and how much each person pays. But it's worth noting that, it, you know, this company operates as both a hardware company and a software company. Right. So if you buy the bike, say, for $2,000, you're still paying about $40 each month for that services, that subscription fee on top of that. Uh-huh. So it'll be really interesting to see how investors value it from that standpoint. Unless you're at a gym, the gym pays for <laughs> it and you log in. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's why I asked the <laughs> revenue per user. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's a good question. All right, Leslie, thank you. I'll let you uh, go through this filing. Leslie Picker at the New York Stock Exchange. What should we make? I'm a huge Peloton fan. As and am you I. Say something As like, am I. So I know, but when you say that, it's like when you go to Bed Bath or Best Buy and you sort of window shop and then you buy it online. That's the same thing well, no, no, when it's you not. go to the gym and no, log it's on. Not. It's Fugazi. The Peloton is being paid for by the gym. Planet I go Fitness. There and I log in. Planet Fitness. Wrong with that. Not that Planet Fitness is a good comp, but it trades at 36 times. The stock was a $20 stock two years ago, traded up to 80, 69 now. I think Peloton probably has better growth. Listen. You do. You pay about $500 a year for the subscription, and people love the product, and the treadmill is better than the bike. What is so, the comp? So, well, I, I don't know we have it. And, and again, this yeah. is another one of these sectors where you're, you're creating, uh, you know, I don't know, fitness as a service, so um, if I may. And, and you, have a, you have a dynamic here where, you know, Planet, Planet Fitness costs 10 bucks a month. You can do a digital app for 20 uh, It's a lot easier to log into your digital app, even though you would think that there's a much better bargain in the $10 Planet Fitness. I, I think there's a limit to how much they can grow. So um, $8 billion from $4 billion last year, that's the real key. Having the metrics to see where there are poo or... Our, our, our woo, um, I don't know, work, workouts, whatever. Um, bottom line is we still need to see the numbers. <laughs> Coming up, gold and silver shining bright today, but one technician says the charts are showing cracks in the metal trade. He will explain. Plus, one top strategist says the biggest bubble ever is about to burst. He'll tell us what that is and what it could mean as recession obsession grips the market. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. 
with a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313 mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Gold getting a bid while silver hit an all-time high today as stocks fell. And Deutsche Bank's betting that gold is about to bounce higher as global central banks continue their bullion binge. Our next guest, though, says the metals are about to lose their shine. Let's Ooh. go off the charts with Chris Verona of Stratigas. Chris, take it away. Hey, Melissa. Well, listen, when you look at the longer-term gold chart, it's hard not to like it. And just like many others have pointed out, you've come out of this very big base. Uh, you were in a seven-year bear market. We know that's turned. But our concern tactically is how stretched gold has become. About 16% above its 200-day moving average, the most stretched we've seen uh, in a number of years. So I think if you're long gold here, you have to think about hedging the position. What I want to show you here is the short-term chart. This is just this year, and we're showing gold with its 20-day moving average, which has been support here, support earlier in the year, and it's where we broke out from uh, in the middle part of the year. I think if gold's correction or if gold's going to pull back here, that 20-day moving average is going to be your line in the sand. You start to break that, I think it risks something deeper, maybe back into that 1440, 1430 range. So I think ultimately the long-term chart's okay. It's the short-term picture, how stretched it is, that has it worried. And also sentiment's gotten very aggressive. These are rolling three-month flows into the GLD. They have absolutely surged over the last number of weeks. So this is a crowded trade. It's stretched. I think sell some calls, buy some puts, protect the position here. If we look at silver, it's a similar situation except one change. Silver, for the first time this entire cycle, it's underperformed gold. That is starting to turn here. So I think in relative terms, owning silver over gold may make some sense here. What I want to be mindful of when you think about gold, it's the same trade this year as utilities plus 20 percent, bonds plus 20 percent, gold plus 20 percent. So I think if we're going to start to see some cracks in gold, I would suspect we see cracks in those others uh, as well. Longer term, we know the chart's fantastic. It's about what do we do in the short term. We think it's too stretched. Hedge. Chris, come on over. Jonah will bring the chair in. Yeoman's work by Jonah. Bringing the chair in? Yes. Respect, Chris. Yeah. yeah, you look great. Nice shades. Really so good. if even in the short term we see a pullback in these so-called safety trades, does yeah. that necessarily mean that we see a, a bounce back short term in some of the other sectors that have lagged? I'm not sure I want to go that far yet. I think when okay. you look at um, what has been so telling about the last number of weeks, despite gold overbought, despite bonds overbought, despite utility overall, we haven't seen those cracks yet. That's why I think you have to use some of those trailing day stops, right? That 20-day moving average on gold has been support all year long. I think if you're going to get a deeper pullback in gold, it probably starts with a violation of some of those levels. If you see gold-silver ratio um, starting to, again, you started to talk about silver is outperforming as it should. We got to basically all-time lows on silver-gold. Um, is, is that indicative of a change in risk profile? You know, it might be. Silver outperforming gold, it's a little bit more of an industrial. Yep. I'm curious if that may 
at least be a similar message to what we're seeing in surprises. Economic surprises have actually started to turn up here. I'd be curious if copper can start to get a little bit of a bid here as well. There's record shorts in copper right now. It's a bad chart, but there's record shorts. And I just think we need to be careful in this environment where positioning or sentiment gets too extreme. Copper is one of those spots here. Could there be something with gold? Uh, We mentioned the Deutsche Bank note earlier, but their case is that all this political uncertainty, but also central banks, there's fewer alternatives to the dollar being a safe haven, so they are propelled to go into gold. No question. Do you think that things are, I hate to say different this time around, but could they be? Every once in a while things are different this time, and if you look over the last 18 months or so, central banks have been absolutely buying physical gold, and it's starting to manifest itself in the price. Listen, I understand what Chris is saying, being disciplined, taking money off the table and something that's run significant uh, amount makes sense. But I still think this has legs. And Dan spoke to this. Now you have 30 percent of global sovereign bonds with negative yields. And if you back out the U.S., that number is ridiculously high, which is why I think gold still has legs here. I think the big question with gold, and this is a little reminiscent of late 90s, when gold first started to work. People woke up to it, but you really didn't get paid, like really paid, until 03, 04, 05, 06. So I would ask the test, what is gold telling us now about the future? Is it inflationary? Is it deflationary? Deflation. It t- right? So Not even close. And, and 20, 2003 and 4 or 5, you're yeah. talking about it was the beginning of a massive commodity super yep. cycle, which was about reflation of assets. Is that in our future? And I don't think any of us know no. the answer to that question just yet. And, you know, when we talk about gold, negative carry, right? This is the first time gold has a positive carry in maybe its entire existence. So there's a reason, I think, Guy, you touch on it. It's a very meaningful reason why gold has worked here. With this backdrop, what does the S&P chart look like? Uh, we're in no man's land, right? Uh, I think Tony said it himself uh, the other night. We're in this 28, 22, 29, 45 range. I think the big, big level is 2730 on the S&P chart. If you violate that, it will be the first lower low, really, of this cycle. We don't want to see that. You don't make lower lows in bull markets. 2730, I think, is the key level for longs here. Chris, thank you. Thank Good you. to see you. Nice glasses, right? It's great specs. I mean, great. I mean, handsome. I wonder if they're real or if they're just glass lenses. Glass. Oh, for the look, yeah, for the fact. It's really smart. You never know. I mean, he sounds smart. He always does. For more on the Metals Rally, head to CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. Here's what else is coming up on the show. Reading the smoke signals. Two tobacco titans are looking to team up, but the market appears to be nixing the nicotine. We'll explain. But first... A $16 trillion warning. One top Wall Street strategist says the biggest bubble ever is about to burst. He'll make his case when Fast Money returns. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Shei, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link 
your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's a $16 trillion warning that could have a huge impact on the entire global economy. Our next guest says the biggest bubble ever is about to burst. Let's bring in Julian Emanuel, Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist at BTIG. Julian, I'm glad you're here. I'm worried about this biggest bubble ever about to burst. You actually shouldn't be worried, Melissa, because if it bursts in the way we think it's going to burst, Uh it's going to be in a positive way. Uh, Wow. So essentially, (laughs) think about this. Seven, eight years ago, everyone was talking about that great rotation trade where we all were going to sell bonds at three and a half, four percent yields and buy stocks. Well, here we are. We're negative 70 basis points in Germany. We're one and a half percent in the U.S. We're at all time highs. People are very worried about recession. We think that the policy response by both the Fed, the European Central Bank Mm -hmm. and ultimately the White House And the German government is going to be enough to cause the bond bubble to burst, and we're going to get a resumed rally in the stock market. You're banking on the bond bubble bursting, though, at the long end of the curve. Yes. So the curve will steepen. Yes. And and actually, this may seem counterintuitive, but it really does work in practice. If the Fed is successful, and we think they're going to cut 50 basis points on September 18th, surprising the market, um, in a positive way, because we don't think that the story that, you know, the Fed does, knows something that the rest of the world doesn't know applies because they've said it a number of times that they don't know anything more. But that is likely to stoke inflation expectations, which will cause long yields to rise. And in fact, one more point. What was interesting about today's action is you haven't seen this happen very often, but yields plunged and the price of oil rose and inflation break evens rose. Obviously, there's always lots of noise in that, but that's but, not a bad sign. So appreciate your always very balanced approach to this. So you're talking, the headline sounds scary, but you're saying actually there's a, there's a, there's a blessing in here. But key to that is you're saying that ECB policy is going to work. Um, our, our yields are getting dragged lower by bond yields, not, not because our economy is going straight downhill. Uh, no question about it. But what I think the change in the last several weeks is, is that the Germans are waking up. Their economy is about to go into recession. They are likely going to take action. And, and look, we've seen the, the response in the market to A, the inversion of the yield curve, and B, to the president's tweets in the, in the last several weeks. All it takes is actually some form of daylight. And against the September 1st tariff deadline, we're going to know very soon whether there is any daylight forming with China um, to really sort of uh, send the bond market uh, uh, moving in the other direction. Things are very, very extended. So, Julian, 50 basis point uh, cut in September is not a mid-cycle adjustment. It is a it is a rate-cutting cycle in. here. And what is your thoughts about the stock? I, I know what you just said about the stock market. But generally, if you look at the last 20 years, it has not been positive for stocks when we start cutting rates, especially from such a low level here. There's no question about that. but And I would say that... Uh, when they cut rates, whatever they do, and again, we do think it's 50 on the 18th, Powell will be very careful not to categorize this as a mid-cycle adjustment or a, a, a cutting cycle. 
just something that they're doing in response to the accumulating stresses uh, in the global economy and to mitigate the risks of clearly, even if the trade war shows some daylight between now and September 18th, you've still got Brexit, an extremely contentious issue, as well as Iran out there. Julian, good to see you. Thank you. Julian Thank you. Manuel of BTIG. So we just could buy the guest, so I will not ask Julian a question because I'm following the rules. The rules but what will I say is if Julian's right, and I'm not bringing him back, I would think that the <laughs> banks would be screaming buys under that scenario. Yes, now, Stephen I don't Gilker. necessarily agree, but if the folks at home agree with I'm Julian. I'm going to give you a special dispensation. Julian. Oh, so you know, Whoa, he's back. Oh, my God. I didn't know you could do that. That is magic. I have the power I to suspend the, the rules. Oh, you left. <laughs> Quickly, are banks a buy in we, this? We think they are. Okay. And furthermore, we actually think that the market's telling you that the cyclical areas will need to work for us to be right that the market will go to 3,000 by year end. Thank you, Julian, once again. Once again. Yeah. Once there again. you have it. I dare you to bring him back in. No. Wait, wait. <laughs> but what market is he, t- is he saying is telling us that? Because the cyclicals, you would think that the banks are obviously pretty cyclical. We just saw industrials turn down. We saw consumer confidence really great, but we see the, the bulk of retail um, to, to look like horrible. Down. Yeah, so, it, I mean, I don't, you know. Well, what about financials, though? You're, you've been more negative and mostly yeah. right yeah. on this whole thing. So. Do you agree? I mean, is that something that, that, no, that stands I think, out to me? I, I think that things? the globe right now and what, what central banks are doing, we are like literally on the precipice of, of seeing what an experiment unlike any in the financial universe has seen. Um, so this is, we are going to zero, okay? Our, our rates are going back to zero from two and a quarter. And every central bank is tripping over well, each other to get their own rates lower. So, uh, so to me, I have no idea what happens. But I, all I can tell you this is that the Japanese bank index, the topics, okay, 30-year lows. The Euro stocks uh, bank index, 30-year lows. And our banks act like dirty, rotten, you know what, and I don't know what comes next, but it's not going to be making a new high anytime soon. Let's get the other side of this. First of all, our banks have outperformed Japanese banks and European banks. I don't even mean in this cycle, which they clearly have, but I mean in other cycles, especially after Japan. Our banks have, yes, they have. So back to the Fed. If this was a mid-cycle adjustment, whether the Fed is going to do that or not, that's very bullish for equities, just to be clear. It means a Fed that got off of the, the, the hawkish tone is actually if anything, in your corner with a market that's uh, an economy that's not falling apart. Mel, if Julian were still here and we could bring him back a second time, uh, I would. Actually, no, they, they gave him the <laughs> he's gone now. He's uh, really he's gone. gone. But the, but the question would be, you know, he, he talks about he. They are dead set on the fifty basis point cut. Uh-huh. That's what it sounds like to me. What if it's not that? I mean, is that going to be something that causes some turmoil with the markets? That it's not enough. I mean, I think we already went through that cycle where a lot of people were hoping we'd cut by fifty basis points this last time. We didn't. So what about that? What if they don't do it this coming time? Is that a negative for the market? Coming up, shares of Autodesk deep in the red on earnings. We'll break down the results straight ahead, plus big tobacco. One big possible deal on the horizon. We'll tell you Philip Morris's potential merger with Altria can light up the tobacco trade. Much more Fast Money right oh. after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Autodesk. You see falling in the after-hour session. Let's get to Rahel Solomon at headquarters with the details. Rahel. Hi, Melissa. So despite a beat on the top and bottom lines, the software design company falling sharply, as you just said there, after lowering its full-year earnings estimate. Its CFO, Scott Heron, pointing to the continuing trade war with China as one reason, saying in part, 
While we continue to execute well and are not materially impacted by current trade tensions and micro macro uncertainty, we are taking a prudent stance to our second half fiscal 2020 outlook. Despite these near-term headwinds, our recurring revenue model is much more resilient than in prior cycles. Now, Autodesk makes products used in everything from architecture to animated films, even fashion. Again, the company falling after hours more than 11% right now, almost 12%, 11.3. Melissa, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. Rahel Solomon. Dan, what's your trade? I thought this one was really interesting, and I'll tell you why. This company trades at 10 times sales, 53 times earnings. It was already down 15% from its recent highs um, a few months ago. And the guidance, you know, the stock's down 11% in the aftermarket. The guidance wasn't that bad. I think the, the commentary about why they're lowering guidance. But in this guidance. market, it was bad, right? Yeah, I no, mean, I, but that's really important. I'm just saying because right. it's a high valuation. But you've got to deliver when you've got a high valuation like they've got, and they didn't. Yeah. They gave you a weaker guidance than expected, and because of that, that's... Those are the names that are going to get punished in this environment yeah. right now. you got a high PE, and you disappoint it's a lot of software factor, names. You're going to get slammed. Right. Yeah. Check out shares of Roku climbing higher today, now up nearly 400 percent in 2019. The stock getting a boost from F, uh, from William Blair after it put out a note comparing its growth to Netflix. The analyst writing, look at Roku's most recent nine quarters against those of Netflix in the beginning phases of phase two. Roku, on average, achieved 9 percent quarter on quarter growth compared to Netflix. Netflix's average of 8%. William Blair has now performed rating on both of these streaming giants, but with Roku growing faster than Netflix did in this stage of its life cycle, is that a better place to be than the 400% gain on the year, Pete? Well, I own Netflix, so my answer would be I, I, I love what Roku's doing. But when you look at these two and you look at market caps and you look at where they are right now in, in the cycle of where they are, Netflix is a far more mature company, and the fact that they're even that close, I mean, you'd expect for Roku to have much better growth, wouldn't you? I mean, I would. And so because of that, I look at Netflix and think, you know what, their biggest competition still to me is going to be Disney. I think the whole streaming issue with them and Disney is going to be, come to a head over the next six months, year, something like that. They still have a little bit of a head start, but they also have that international growth that we all point to all the time. So I still am a believer right now, at least in Netflix, but Roku's doing everything right. But I, I look at this, this measurement as almost more po- bullish towards Netflix than it is for Roku. Didn't we uh, do a would we, you rather? We, yeah, we certainly did a, few, like, a couple weeks ago. And we, you chose Roku. And I, I'll stay with the Roku. Listen, I, I understand valuation is stretched, but, you know, it's been stretched for quite some time. And they seem to have the growth. And they're the leaders in the over-the-top world. So I say you stay with the Roku. You, I think you're going to start seeing some analysts raise price targets on the back of that August 8th release. I think if you want to play Would You Rather again, it's R-O-K-U. Self, would you rather. Well, it, it's hard to scream value when talking about either of them. I mean, Netflix is, is, is a ridiculous valuation that I think is coming home to roost. Um, Roku is simply what, what Netflix used to be. Um, it's the clean conduit. It's, it's certainly kind of vendor independent on some level. It's certainly, you know, Disney Plus is very happy with Roku, et cetera, et cetera. So Roku is the pure final mile. Not really. I mean, like, oh. listen, you know, in front of Apple's introduction of their service and they have Apple TV and they're going to be smart connected TVs are going to proliferate like crazy. I just don't understand the hardware component of this. I know that we're at a very early stage of this cutting the cord. So you're going to have winners like this. But to me, this trades at a multiple that no one can buy it. No one can buy a hardware company that does this, especially when you look at how well finance these software companies who also own the content and then can develop their own original content. This one, I know it's up 380 percent year to date. You know, have at it. Listen to guy. I mean, why would you? They're going to be going in the dustbin with the Fitbits and the uh, the other GoPros dustbin. and all that other crap. So the to dustbin. me, yeah. that's nice. Yeah. yeah. Is that a, thing? a good expression? Yeah. <laughs> Is that a thing? You know. <laughs>
the trash can. Yeah. The smart TV thing is very exciting for me because I have that <laughs> Sony Trinitron XBR. The thing weighs like 400 pounds. It's like four. It's as deep four as it is wide. It's yeah. as deep as it is wide. <laughs> Which, it's tremendous. I I'll leave it there. I'm going to leave it there, yeah. Coming up, <laughs> chaos in Costco. As the retailer's big China debut is flooded with customers, why these images could be telling the real story about what's happening inside of China. And later, deal talks heating up between two tobacco giants, but could a merger help light a spark in the beaten down industry? Stick with us. Fast Money's back right after this. Delivering Alpha, the most important investor summit, nine years running. Strategy from leading alpha generators. Direct access to policymakers and government leaders. On September 19th, see who's calling the shots now. Go to DeliveringAlpha.com to attend this year's blockbuster event. You will come away with ideas that you can put to work immediately. Plus, special guest Vice President Mike Pence talks economy and trade war impact. Reserve your spot now at DeliveringAlpha.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. A big tobacco deal possibly in the works as Philip Morris and Altria confirm that they are talking. The deal would reunite the two tobacco giants as they try to combat a slowdown in overall tobacco use. Both stocks closing lower today. But could the deal eventually spark an even bigger rally? And this is all about also combining Icos, the marketing for Icos, which is their alternative cigarette product, along with Juul, uh, the vaping product. And, And could this actually work? Well, they're, they're, they're not dealing from strength, right? So these guys are coming together because I think they believe that the combined market share, their ability to, to move into lateral businesses, whether it's been e-cigarettes, um, they own 45% of Kronos, which really was not a good purchase, frankly. Um, you have a case where I think the companies have massive market share. They're massive consumer products companies with massive distribution. Uh, I think the combination would be formidable if it could go through. And it's interesting to see, you know, this is a company that, that wasn't that long ago split themselves up, right? Yeah. I mean, the fact that they're, they're wanting to come back together, you're, like you said, it's almost a point of weakness, though. And they're just trying to sort of circle the wagons right now, Mel. The interesting thing was, just last week on Friday, there was monstrous call buying in here. So somebody was right, somebody sniffed out something. And it's interesting to watch this whole process because as we move further down, I think distribution will be huge. And that's the one aspect that I think people are looking past right now. Price action, though, you have to be concerned. I mean, this is a stock that's in a whisper of the December low, which I think was about 42.5. Huge volume day. Every, you know, it seems like it can make a series of lower highs and lower lows. I mean, if you caught that move, which Pete probably did, that's great, but the stock doesn't really feel like it wants to accelerate to the upside, especially when it reversed today on huge volume. All right. Well, Tim had mentioned pot stocks that are up in smoke today. Um, Canopy Grow, Tilray, Aurora, Kronos, all falling deep in the red. Kind of a mixed bag this year for the cannabis space as companies try to keep up with the surge in product demand. Investors await regulatory updates in the budding industry, so to speak. Oh. Um, now, Tim Seymour is all over the space. He's long a number of names, also sits on an advisory board for three cannabis uh, stocks. For all of Tim's disclosures, go to fast.cnbc.com. Why is this happening? Well, I think you have a combination. First of all, the industry hasn't seen any new capital come in. So you're, you're dealing with recycled money and over over again in, in the regulatory landscape, which we're hoping for the safe New capital act. meaning investors in their shares. I mean, traditional capital markets are okay. not open for the cannabis industry. That's been a major issue. But but to be clear, some of the biggest names in the industry, certainly the Canadian names, and the trade of being long U.S. over Canada has been the right trade over the last couple of months, although the U.S. names have traded down dramatically. But very concerned about asset purchases that went on 6, 12, 18 months, two 
two years ago in terms of goodwill charges against some of the biggest LPs in Canada. Um, the good news for the sector is in the last three or four days, and certainly in the last week, you've had two of the biggest U.S. multi-state operators, Cresco Labs and Cureleaf, out there report really fantastic numbers. Profitability at Cresco Labs, pro forma numbers over 100 million at Cureleaf out this afternoon. Those are success stories. And, and certainly, you know, the opioid crisis and the front page news of where integrative medicine can be an alternative for this and where cannabis and THC play, that's just one part of this investment story. So um, capital markets are the big issue right now for this sector. Is, are these the kinds of stocks you want to be in in this kind of market? You know, what I'm seeing right now tells me no. I, I, it's amazing because we talked about metals earlier. We talked about gold and silver and all the rest of that. I'm overloaded in those things just because the option activity has been absolutely incredible, Mel, in that sector since the end of May. And they have absolutely taken off to the upside. It's odd, but you do not see a whole lot of option activity around stocks that are either already in the cannabis industry or moving towards the cannabis industry. I guess the question I have for Tim is, do they, is, is there U.S. companies right now that would be smart to prey upon the drop that we've seen out of these stocks right now, because many of these stocks, I mean, you look at some of these stocks up 60 plus percent. It would seem to me if you're looking for an area to try to enter into in a partnership or buy shares of, it seems like now would be the time. Look, so Canopy Growth is $3.1 billion in cash on their balance sheet. I mean, they're going to be a buyer of extreme pain out there. Some of the big U.S. multi-state operators are in a fantastic position to be buying weakness in the public markets. At some point, you're actually going to see some of the public guys trading at a, at, at a discount to cash based upon their ability, their inability to access traditional capital markets. All right. Coming up next, what trade war? Tale to China's why these images from Costco sh- opening in Shanghai could be telling a big story on the state of things in China. We will explain. Plus, take a look at our Kramer cam. Jim is talking about how to make money in volatile markets. It's coming up at Mad Money, top of the hour. We're live at the Nasdaq in Times Square. Much more fast money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's been a rough month for retail, but check out Costco bucking the trend, surging 5% today. And the options market is predicting the big box giant will see even bigger gains before the week is out. Mike Coe is in San Francisco with the options action. Hey, Mike. Hi there. There was quite a frenzy at the Costco store in China, and there's quite a frenzy in the options market, too. It traded over six times its average daily call volume, trading over 60,000 call contracts. Most of that activity was concentrated in the options that expire at the end of this week. Earlier today, we were seeing the 280s and 285s, but obviously, as the stock appreciated, they had to reach out for higher strikes. The strike I was looking at was the 292.5s that expire on Friday. Over 3,300 of those traded hands for an average of $2.15 and ended up closing a little over 3 bucks. And I think it makes sense when you see people making purchases of these types of calls. They're risking just a little over 1% of the current stock price, betting that the stock could go higher. And considering it moved 5% just today alone, you can see that those options actually are quite reasonably priced if you're making these kinds of short-term bullish bets. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Cohen, San Francisco. Um, Mike had mentioned that first store opening in China. What a scene. The uh, bulk retailer held its grand opening in Shanghai today. It was forced to close its doors early because of overwhelming turnout. Floods of shoppers causing chaos at the store, even creating traffic jams outside. So the, that got us thinking. Oh. Remember that dress that took the internet by storm? Yeah. Some people oh, yeah. saw a blue dress, a yeah. black dress, a gold Definitely dress, black. a white. I mean, all over the map here. It was the same image, but they told two very different stories depending on who was looking at it. Oh. So we ask, <laughs> does the same apply to Costco in China? When you take a look at these scenes, one is on the left is blue, the one on the right is gold. Uh-huh. Are you seeing a company that needs China for its next leg of growth? 
Or are you seeing a Chinese consumer who doesn't care about U.S.-China trade tensions or buying from a U.S. company? It's a complicated question. Dan, what do you think? It's a really smart question, actually. Um, no, you know, I <laughs> it's think the it's the same thing. I think it's, can I tell you what's really interesting? Same thing, Dan. Is that, you know who's not in China? Costco's biggest competitor in the U.S., you know, it, which is Amazon. You think about it, right? And so Amazon's got Prime, and this has been something that kind of you would thought would have held back the Costco story. I, I think this is really fascinating on a lot of levels. I think that there's a U.S. model that could clearly work there, and it just shows you that in day one. So it could be a huge leg of growth. By the same token, these guys import a lot of their merchandise for their U.S. stores um, from China. And so this is another situation, just like Apple, they have to walk a very fine line with the, the U.S. and tariffs and over there. So to me, I think this is a great uh, opportunity, obviously, for Costco. What do you say, I, rec- I, I would say, well, first of all, what color is the, they need yes. it for growth? Uh, the blue? It's blue. So it's the other color to me. They don't gold. need it. It's gold. Costco doesn't need anything, quite frankly. And go back to May, by the way, when the market was rolling over. And we had Carter Braxtonworth over there at the smart board. Do you recall that? I do. And he talked about Costco, which is hanging in there at 250 at the time, an all-time high. And it was telling you something. We had that conversation Look at it now. It's about membership. It's about people like Pedro walking in there. Dark too, every week. Every, every week. Solid That's samples. what it's about. You love yeah, the walk samples. through there. I get the samples. I also buy a lot of things from them, but it makes a lot of sense to me. You know, they've been there for a while, obviously, through Alibaba. So there is a presence for Costco. They've been there since, I think, 2014, something like that. But, you know, it's interesting, Mel. I, I think the Chinese are excited to buy, to go in there and find those deals in person and get them right then. So... It makes sense to me that they get these crazy traffic numbers. You know, they had to delay schools and all that kind of thing. I mean, absolutely amazing what happened today because of what was going on. It's incredible. So no impact from, you're like, Chinese consumer, they love American brands. They'll keep going as long as they want to go. I I would absolutely go with that, yes. Well, if you look at Costco's U.S. same-store sales in July, they were up 5.5%, which was slightly better than expected. They're not falling on their face here. Um, So Guy's point is that that's a nice growth business for them. Um, question is, is that the reason the stock has doubled um, in two and a half years? And I don't think it is. I think it's execution uh, and I think their ability so to actually take market share a, in the U.S. Okay, a stock that you here own. we go. Starbucks. Uh, Starbucks, how much of that multiple is based on China growth? And if the Chinese government does something to hurt Starbucks or to make it more difficult to open up stores, which they are very aggressive uh, about in China, than, than what happens at multiple. You're, trying to, you're asking me to give attribution on the Starbucks move over on the stock. How much what percentage of that could be construed as For China? For you, how, much, how important it's, it's is the 10 to, It's 10 to 20%. Look, okay. the U.S. same-store sales, their ability to pass through uh, price increases, that the fact that coffee prices are dropping through the floor, um, their margins are part of this. All right. Up next, final trades. Trade time, Pete Nigerian. Richard Kinder keeps on buying. Love this name. Kinder Morgan, KMI, giddy up. Tim. Like Altry in this deal, still not a lot of details, but this is if a merger of equals, we'll see. But powerful industrial company. Dan. Uh, yeah, XLF banks, U.S. banks in particular. I don't like them. I think he's selling here. Key. Big night for the Mets with the Cubs. This Ooh. is a critical series. Oh, oh, I just want you empathy. to know that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a couple weeks ago, we, <laughs> we talked about something <laughs> weird going on in Blackstone. Well, that sucker, I think, made an all-time high today. BX. That does it for us. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. 
specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.